welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature audio from our Expo 2020 panel series. In this episode, Bob Cusimano from Coding Consultants Incorporated talks about estimating, understanding paint failures, and the things you can do to avoid them. Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, My name is Bob Cusimano. I'm a former painting contractor, uh, former national president of PDCA, and uh, now I have a consulting company called Coatings Consultants Incorporated, and the main thing that I do is analyze paint failures, and uh, unfortunately I testify in court quite a bit regarding that as well. So today uh, we just completed a a two-day Uh, estimating blueprint reading and estimating class uh, prior to the beginning of Expo. And today I want to talk about understanding paint failures and things that you can do to avoid them. Um, First of all, if you're a good estimator, you follow these steps in all the estimates that you put together. First thing you do is determine the scope of work. You identify all items and surfaces to be protected, prepared, or finished. Then you perform a quantity takeoff. You measure all items or count all items that are going to be included in your estimate. The third step should be to calculate labor cost to perform the job, and you do that by applying labor production rates. The fourth step is to calculate the cost of the materials to perform the job. The fifth step is to identify and calculate any additional job costs. Additional job costs are anything that aren't labor and aren't material, but you wouldn't have unless you did that particular job. So it could be things like special equipment that you have to buy or rent. It could be subcontracts. It might be as simple as having power lines uh, covered next to a building that you're going to pressure wash and paint. It might be building a temporary walkway so that the public can walk under while you're painting the building above. Those are all additional job costs. The sixth step, and one that unfortunately is is not performed correctly by many contractors, is to add proper overhead costs to their work. So many contractors come to me and say, well, I'm a small company, so my overhead is low. Generally, it's the opposite. If you're a small company, It's a higher percentage because you're not spreading those costs over as many people. And the seventh step, up to that point, the first six steps are simply identifying what the cost of the job is. The seventh step is the only one where there's really any strategy, and that's how much profit can we add to it. Well, proper job costing is the key to estimating success. I have so many students that come to the estimating classes. Many of them own their own businesses. Many of them are supervisors or foremen. And then when we go to price out jobs, they have no idea what kind of production rates they get on the projects that they're doing. 
It's a shame. You create history on every job that you do every, job, every day. Take the time to find out what kind of production rates you're getting. That's the best way to estimate future work and make sure you're not going to lose money on it. One of the things, the best thing you can do to improve your bottom line is to avoid coding failures on your, on your jobs. And unfortunately, I see a lot of those, and I'm going to talk about some of those and how, what you can do to hopefully not be in some of my pictures in future seminars. Many of you are forgetting one very important item from additional job costs. We talked about uh, subcontracts, about equipment. Include time in your estimates for doing testing. So many of the failures you're going to see could have been avoided if the painting contractor had done some simple tests. I'm going to do an adhesion by tape test. This is the simplest kind of adhesion test, and we can do it on any uh, substrate that's, that's smooth. And so the first thing I'm going to do is take a razor blade or a razor knife and make an X cut through the paint. And I'm trying not to particularly cut deep into the substrate itself, but cut through the layers of paint. Then I'm going to apply an adhesive tape. In this case, I'm using a tape that's um, Scotch 202. Uh, you can use any strong uh, masking tape to do this test. I'm going to put it over the X and I take my finger or an eraser and make sure it's well adhered over the X and then I'm going to pull the loose end back across the length of the tape and the adhesion is determined by the amount of paint that's removed. As you can see, no paint came off the test sample indicating that this was good adhesion. And you can see that on the sample itself that the X is clean with no paint coming off. I see millions of dollars of paint failures that could have been avoided if the painting contractor had done a simple test like this. Very easy to do. So many times the paint looks good, but it's not. Here's a case of two, this was uh, this past year and, and year and a half, two large Las Vegas warehouses. All done, all painted. You can see it's large. Here's the back of the warehouse. Paint looks good from here. Within six months, they started to get some bubbling. You can see here there's a blister starting to form in this area. So they had us come in and we did adhesion tests, adhesion by tape tests that I just explained. Here's the result. You can see the size of the X here, and you can see how much more paint came off way beyond the X. Another one. Another one. Another one, same job, all over this project, every place we tested, poor adhesion. 
even on the wainscot down below, poor adhesion. Nothing you can do over the top of this to improve the adhesion. So what do you do? And when we look at the samples in a microscope, what you can see is the paint here. And then from here down, this is patching material. What happened on these warehouses, the concrete was such that the patching contractor had to patch 80% of the walls. Now, normally with tilt up, you should just be having to patch bug holes and, and some uh, joints where they're ground and so forth. But in this case, the concrete, in both cases, both warehouses, the concrete was bad enough that they had to patch 80% of the walls. The patching contractor did something pretty foolish. He mixed some joint compound in with his patching material. So it was very powdery. It had no substance. However, if you had painted one portion and done an adhesion test, you wouldn't have kept going. Hopefully you wouldn't have kept going. And that's the point, is to discover these things early. So what happened there? Well, the entire building had to be sandblasted, repatched, two buildings, two buildings between the two claims, over $3 million. Could have been avoided. Could have easily been avoided. It's, it's, it's a crime. We're seeing level five gypsum board finishes become much more popular than they used to be. And there are five different levels of finish on drywall. Uh, zero is just that the drywall is hung and that's done for fire protection services uh, purposes sometimes. Level one is tape and embedded in mud. Level two is uh, a thin coat of mud over the tape joints and the, and the screws. Level three is another coat of mud. Level four is another coat of mud on those. And then level five now is a full skim coat of some material over the entire surface. So you're not seeing any, any um, paper on the drywall anymore. I am seeing a lot of paint failures and other failures on level five finishes. And okay, uh, we're going to do an ASTM chalk test on a level Let's, five gypsum. Board. I'm doing an ASTM chalk test on a level five finish. What I'm going to take is a piece of black cloth and wipe it across the surface. I'm getting a heavy chalk that's in the ASTM chart. And so if we painted directly over that, we'd have poor adhesion because latex paints don't penetrate. They, they stay on the surface. is multiple tests in the same place because this could be surface dust. So what we're going to do is another test at the same spot. Again, I got a heavy chalk. Let's do a third test. Again, heavy chalk. And a fourth test, again heavy chalk. What that means is that this surface is dusting. It doesn't have dust on it. Actually, the material itself is dusting, which means that we've got to do something to this surface to solidify it prior to putting on a, a waterborne paint. Otherwise, we're going to have massive failure. 
So I apologize, you couldn't hear too well, but what I did was multiple chalk tests in the same spot. So often when paint peels on a level five finish, the painting contractor gets blamed, you didn't dust down the surface. Well, this isn't surface dust. This is a material that doesn't have enough cohesion to hold itself together. And once you paint it, you're gonna have peeling problems. So do this test before you ever apply paint. Because otherwise you're gonna have the issue. Now, if you catch this before you prime it, there, you can use different primers that penetrate and harden and may be able to, to satisfy the adhesion that you need with the paint system. Also bear in mind that the higher quality of paint that you use, the more weight and stress it puts on the surface, the worse the peeling becomes. So here's a brand new school on the left side. It's opened. Within the first couple months, we've got large scale areas that are peeling. This was a beautiful mansion in, in Boca Raton, Florida. You can't really see, but the, there was an artist that made some blue lines. Well, here's one, a blue line. They were gonna do some faux finishing or uh, decorative finishing. Before they even got to do that, there's paint falling off the ceiling under its own weight. Again, when, if you look at that under a microscope, you're gonna see the paint, and then you're gonna see a large amount of joint compound attached to the rear. All joint compounds are not the same. Some are, are good and hardy and, and easy to paint, no problem. Others are gonna dust like this. So you need to do that test to make sure you don't have this kind of failure. Test it right away. Last week, I went to a project uh, in Naples, Florida. Um, Two million dollar townhouses. Every one has this issue in it. There's six of them. Fortunately, it's only six of them. But still, large failure. Vinyl wall covering at a luxury New York City hotel. Uh, beautiful hotel overlooking Central Park. They did a complete renovation of the hotel. New vinyl wall covering in all the rooms. Something like 400 rooms, I think. Um, Within a short time of the job being completed, joints started to open up in the wall covering. Every room, almost every joint, started to open up about three months after the job was completed. Contractor, the painting contractor went back, glued some back down, continued to happen. Can you see this thin line right here? What that is, is that was a level five finish on the walls, and he double cut the wall covering. Unfortunately, he cut into the joint compound, and because it had low cohesion, it fractured and opened up those seams. Now, here you can see that this is the vinyl on the top. This is the, that's the facing of the wall covering. That's the, the actual wall covering itself. This is the backing. This is the paint primer that he applied. And here's the joint compound that came off at every seam.
That job is now being redone by a different contractor. It's going to court. It's a million and a half dollar claim to redo these. What could he have done? Here you can see a typical joint, how the joint compound came off at where the level five finish was, was cut. First of all, I don't know why they put a level five finish. You know, a lot of times people think level five finish is better. Well, you just saw several reasons why it's not always better and why you've got to be careful with it because it can be very delicate. And so what he could have done was a couple things. He could have used what's called a seam buster. It's a, th a thing, a tool that has a plate behind the blade so that you don't cut into the drywall. Uh, or he could have, what the contractor is doing now is putting a material behind uh, where he's gonna make the double cut. So again, he can't cut into the, uh, into the level five finish. Had that been a level four finish, a majority of the joints would have been over paper and he wouldn't have had this issue. So it was a level five finish that led to this issue. I'm getting some failures uh, recently that I haven't seen for many years. I've been doing this since 1986. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing many more, more failures on concrete structures, both tilt up and precast. And one of the things you should do to protect yourself is to do pH testing on any substrate that contains cement. So that's concrete, that's concrete block, that's stucco. pH is a measure of the acidity or alkalinity of a sub substrate. A pH of seven is neutral. It'd be wonderful if everything we painted had a pH of seven. As we go lower and lower from seven, we get more and more acidic. But the good news is that most acids don't affect paint. If you have a garage door that's painted and you pour muriatic acid on it, it doesn't eat up the paint. But as we go higher and higher from seven, we're getting more and more alkaline. And alkalinity can do very bad things to paint. So to perform the test, we simply take a pH pencil, which you can buy at a testing store, many paint stores. You make a mark on the substrate. You take a drop of distilled water that you can buy at the grocery store, and you put it on it, and you see what color it turns, and you compare it to the pH chart. Here I had a spot on a hardy board that was a pH of 7. Now down here I've got a spot that's a pH of 12. Anything over 10 is considered to be highly alkaline. Now you've got paint manufacturers making primers that they say they're hot primers and that they can go on a pH of 13. What that means is that that primer itself won't break down. What it doesn't mean is that if there's a moisture drive out of that concrete, you're not gonna have problems with the finished paint. But to protect yourself, to show that you didn't apply the paint when the pH was too high, do the pH testing before you paint. Because many times what happens is when paint, when the moisture starts emanating out of the concrete, it brings the alkaline salts from the concrete to the back of the paint. 
So you do your testing and you're getting a pH of 9. Now you paint, moisture's trying to get out, it brings alkalinity. Now if you take off that paint, the pH is 12 behind it. You've got to prove that you didn't paint it when the pH was too high. So keep the records of doing the pH tests. Here's concrete. You can see uh, it's a heavy texture. The concrete below it's got a pH of 12, turned blue, turned bright blue. Every painting contractor should have a moisture meter. You should check the moisture of substrates prior to painting because you'll always see on the data sheets it'll say the substrate shouldn't be any more than this percent moisture. Hopefully you can get a moisture meter that has a wood scale, a drywall, a, a plaster concrete scale, and a drywall scale because those, the amount of moisture is measured differently in those substrates. If you've got a, 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 a moisture meter that only has one scale, it's not, it, it doesn't work correctly for wood or drywall. It's only appropriate for concrete and plaster and stucco. Generally, the wood scale tells you if you get uh, a level of uh, 6 to 15 percent, you're okay. Uh, plaster and concrete says you can go up to 85 percent and be okay, but as I said, that's okay to paint, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have a future problem. And drywall is in a green level of 0 percent to a half a percent. Other tests you should do on concrete, simple ASTM test. Take a piece of visqueen, square visqueen, foot square, 18 inches square. Take duct tape and tape it to the surface. Leave it there 24 hours. Go back, if the area of the concrete under the plastic is darker than it is out here, or if there's droplets of moisture, you know there's moisture coming out. If you do concrete floors, I've seen some tremendous failures on concrete floors. You should do more testing than that or have testing done by someone else before you put an epoxy or a urethane floor down. This is a, uh, a test called the calcium chloride test where you take this disc that has calcium chloride in it, you put it down on the bare floor, you, you weigh it before you do that. You put it down on the bare floor. You've got this uh, plastic cover that's got a putty-like material around it, and you fasten that down. You leave it there for three days. You take it up, reweigh it, and that tells you the amount of moisture being emitted out of the concrete. Now, floor coatings will say this product can withstand up to six pounds per 24 hours per square foot. I've done testing on some uh, floors that I've had as many as 24 pounds, four times the allowed amount coming up through the floor, and it's no wonder that the floor coating was failing very badly. So it's something to be aware of, especially if you do concrete floors. Another test you ought to do, very simple, if you're painting concrete, put a drop of acid on it. If it doesn't fizz like this and bubble, that means there's a sealer there that can interfere with the adhesion. That's muriatic or, or uh, nitric will work. Here's three concrete structures. 
very recent that I went to that are failing. This is an auto dealership in South Florida. Actually, on this concrete, they put a concrete stain. After they put it on, it was really well adhered. The contractor said the adhesion was very good. Six months later, they started to get some peeling. You could peel off areas almost like wall covering. They had done pH testing before. They kept the records so they could prove that the pH was 9 or 10 prior to painting, prior to putting on the stain. Now you see, went back an additional two months later, and now you've got some pretty good areas that are just spontaneously delaminating. Take that black cloth, wipe it across the concrete now, you're getting a white powder. That's alkaline salts that are coming out of the concrete. In this case, it was an open garage. South Florida, we get some pretty good sun. The moisture drive in the concrete, the moisture's trying to go outward. When the, when the sun hits the surface, it heats it. Moisture's trying to get out. So that's where the failure occurred, on that side of the wall. Chicago, a gymnasium. The gymnasium was built like four to five years before I went there. Concrete, nice gymnasium. From here, the paint looks good. You get up close, you see it's starting to suffer what's called alkali burn. It's got this very mottled appearance. Some areas were so severe it's starting to blister. Heavy salts behind it. The primer basically was uh, turned into soap. It's called saponification, where a combination of moisture and alkalinity turns the resin of the paint into soap. And here we had wide-scale delamination at some parts of the building. There was still so much moisture coming out after four years on the concrete. A recreation center in South Carolina, again a gymnasium. Nice looking gym, you look close, starting to get the same issue. The modeled look, the alkali burn, the high pH, This is a, a, it's called a deep probe moisture meter that reads moisture uh, up to four inches deep. So I use that on these concrete surfaces and you can see it's pegging the meter, 99.9%. That's as high as it goes. I wanted to know why, why am I seeing this now and I never saw it before? And I happened to be doing a, um, consulting job for the owner of Mashmeyer Concrete. So he got me in touch with some concrete experts, and the best answer I got from them was that they're using stronger, uh, higher strength concrete now because they want to be able to tilt these panels up quicker. To meet a schedule, they're trying to tilt these up as quick as they can. The surface of some of these is slick as glass. That further retards moisture from getting out. So the high strength concrete's holding moisture, 
The slick surface is holding moisture, and what it's causing is some tremendous paint problems. About the only way I know how to protect, I, you can't really avoid this if that's the thing, because I know they tell you you gotta paint. The one thing you can do is check the pH before you paint it, do some moisture testing, show the moisture content is really high, and just warn them that this is gonna likely to be a problem. The more breathable the paint you put on, the better. It's gonna allow some of that moisture to escape. If a paint is not very permeable, it's gonna hold that moisture in more. Now, in these two gymnasiums, they're air-conditioned, so in this case, the moisture drive is inside. The air conditioning is drying the air in the room, so the moisture in the concrete is trying to come in, not go the other way and go out. I, drill, I had the uh, general contractor drill some holes at a certain depth, first a quarter of an inch, then a half inch, then three quarters of an inch, and I took the moisture meter and put on a probe that has insulated pins so that only the ends read the amount of moisture. So at a quarter of an inch, I could read the moisture at a half inch, at three quarters of an inch, and an inch. And we found there was high moisture all the way through. Concrete hadn't dried out. It can take years for the concrete to dry out. And in this case, they wanted epoxy paints on the walls that holds the, the moisture in. So there was no breathability. It was bound to fail. Here, here it was at, uh, at a quarter of an inch, I believe, was 80%. So what do you do? You can't wait years to try. No, you can't. That's why I'm saying the only thing you can do is show that the surface was not highly alkaline when you painted it. That's about all you can do, and you can warn them that you're putting on a non-breathing painting system. The other thing you can do is get to your paint supplier. I tell that at every, every estimating seminar, I say, don't write specifications yourself. Go to the, anytime paint fails, it's your problem. One way or another, you're gonna, you're gonna be involved, whether it's your fault or not. Go to them, warn them that this is, I'm concerned about putting this system here. Make sure they do the testing. Let them be the bad guy and go to the owner and say, this is liable to be a problem and so forth. I would. I would. Yeah. I certainly would. Painting galvanized steel can be very tricky as well. Um, delamination can, can uh, happen for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's a hard, glossy surface, so you don't get any mechanical adhesion. Uh, paint adheres for two reasons for a chemical attraction to the substrate that it's applied, and also a mechanical adhesion. So the rougher the surface, the better the adhesion. Uh, galvanizing is often very uh, hard and, and glossy, because it looks nice, and that can be a problem. If you put an alkyd paint on galvanizing, a chemical reaction called saponification occurs. That's the only instance where if you put an alkyd paint on galvanizing, it'll have good adhesion now, but it'll develop and become poor. 
Almost every other instance, if there's good adhesion now, it's going to continue to be good. A lot of times I'm asked, how long should I wait for the paint? I'm painting the concrete. How long should I wait to do the adhesion test? And my answer is, um, you can do it after, after a day, after two days. If you get good results, it's not going to get worse. It may get better, but it's not going to get worse. So if you're satisfied with the adhesion after a day, it's not going to get worse after a week, unless we have something like all that moisture coming out that we talked about. Often, galvanizing comes from other countries. And during shipment, galvanizing is actually a layer of zinc on top of steel, so you're painting zinc. When zinc corrodes, it forms zinc oxide, which is white. Well, that doesn't look good on these sheets that are coming across the ocean on ships. So they put a post-treatment on it to keep them from corroding. Unfortunately, that post-treatment will interfere with paint adhesion. So you need to see if one is there. And there's a test to do that. Here's the nice galvanized sheeting, nice and shiny. You want to make sure that your painted ceiling that looks like that doesn't wind up looking like this. So a simple test, you get something called lead acetate. Some crystals, you can buy it online. I bought it from something called the Science Store. And you take some crystals and you dissolve it in distilled water. And then you wipe it onto the galvanizing. Painting galvanized steel surfaces can be very tricky and there are a lot of paint adhesion failures on galvanized. And one test you should always do uh, prior to painting is a test to determine if there's been a uh, pretreatment done to the galvanizing that will keep it from white rusting but will also interfere with the adhesion of the paint. What I'm doing is I'm doing a, a test using lead acetate. I'm going to take a Q-tip and put some lead acetate onto the surface. And I don't see any kind of color change. That's an indication that there is either a pre-treatment or a post-treatment on here that's going to affect with adhesion, uh, interfere with adhesion. So now I'm going to take a piece of sandpaper and I'm going to sand that area. And I'm going to repeat the test. In this case, we immediately see the galvanized surface turns black, which means that the sanding I've done has removed that treatment that will interfere with adhesion. This implies that before this surface can be properly painted, it needs to have that treatment removed. The most effective way to do that is by brush blasting. It can also be sanded. In some cases, solvent cleaning may remove it. However, when you've got a large galvanized steel ceiling, there's no easy way to make sure you're going to have good adhesion. But don't let the manufacturer make their problem 
your problem. Make sure you do this test. In fact, test in more than one area because you could have sheet steel that's been supplied by more than one manufacturer. It's a very simple test. You can avoid some very big problems by doing that. Uh, there was a contractor in Puerto Rico that certainly wishes he had done that. Um, it was a, uh, the job was a large federal courthouse uh, and office building, six-story office building, three-story courthouse. It uh, underwent renovation for uh, three years. They, uh, they put in all new air conditioning ducts and they were concerned about having a sick building so they had an antimicrobial coating sprayed onto the inside of the ducts and then it was all assembled and so forth. Uh, after three years, they turned on the air conditioning system and paint flakes started coming out into all the offices and the courtrooms. And so you can see the size of some of the paint flakes, that's four inches long, so it's big pieces were peeling off. So we were hired to go down and do testing in these ducts. And we had the, uh, the mechanical contractor cut some holes in the ducts. And I'd go up there, stick my head in there and do some adhesion testing. And uh, when you're test doing the adhesion test on metal, then you usually use a grid cut like this instead of just an, an X cut. So you can see the razor blade cut lines and we had some bad results, very bad results. Uh, then what we did was we took a robot and sent it down into all these ducts. And I had to look at hours and hours of video from this robot to determine what percentage was a problem. And it's, you can see here, there were a lot of areas where the paint is just really coming off big time and, and here you can see it, some of the duct was just almost bare. And so um, this, again, became a big lawsuit. Uh, the uh, General Services Administration sued the general contractor, who in turn sued the mechanical contractor, who in turn sued the painting contractor. And so everybody was involved in this. Finally, they were able to, uh, money changed hands, but, but the GSA allowed them to go back through with robots that would clean the paint off. They didn't ask to have it repainted as long as they could remove all the loose paint, and so that's what happened. But that was a very costly settlement. Again, uh, the paint manufacturer was really at at fault to a great degree because they had a, a, uh, a cleaner and they said all you do is you thin this cleaner 10 parts of water to one part of cleaner you you put it on the you scrub it onto the metal let it sit for five minutes wash it off let it dry and then your paint will adhere well this is I, I got some of the plates to test their cleaner. And so uh, I thinned their cleaner 10 parts, like they said, put it on the plate, uh, washed it off, dried it, and then I did my 
uh, lead, uh, lead uh, acetate test, and you can see there's some black, but there's a whole lot of areas that aren't black. So then I took that cleaner at full strength, didn't thin it at all, put it on, did the same thing, and again, it did not remove all of the pretreatment. You can see large areas, and that's why we had some good adhesion in locations, but real bad adhesion in others. Luckily for that paint manufacturer, they bought their way out of this lawsuit very early and left all the other people holding the bag. Um, what had to be done, this is that same plate. Now I took some sandpaper and sanded it, and you can see the effect of lead acetate. Now, by doing this test, a lot of times your specifications will say the painting contractor is responsible for any surface preparation necessary to achieve good adhesion. Would you have figured to brush blast that galvanized ceiling before you paint it? No, I doubt you would have. Do this test, and then you go back to them and say, this is what has to be done. The specifications didn't anticipate this. <coughs> if you read the galvanizing section and it says there's a pretreatment, in the estimating process, that should send off a, a light bulb or a firework in your head and say, I'm liable to have this problem. And make sure you do it, you address it before it occurs. Again, finding out these problems early is the key to avoiding these big lawsuits. In each of these cases, nobody found out it was a problem until after the job is done. That's the key is to find out early to avoid it. Catastrophic failure could have been avoided if a simple adhesion test had been performed. A lot of times we use brightly colored paints. And some paints are prone to a condition called alkali burn. And alkali burn is again when there's moisture, when either you paint a substrate that's highly alkaline or if moisture is uh, coming out and that is bringing the alkali salts behind the, the paint. Now, there are some conditions that can make you responsible. Alkali burn occurs from the back of the paint film towards the surface. So if you don't apply the paint to the specified dry film thickness, if you apply it too thinly, you can be responsible because it wouldn't have reached the surface had you applied it at the proper thickness. But sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's alkali burn or whether it's an unstable paint pigment, because that can also burn out. A simple test you can do, here you can see the, these are building at Disney, um, I think it was called the World of Color or Art and Color or something like that, and some bright, bright colors that they used, but we can see a lot of this alkali burn. Now, the test that you do is this. I've got two paints, and I'm going to test the stability of the paint pigments. This is a, a test to determine the stability of the paint pigments used to make particular colors. I've got two paint samples. One, as you can see, is kind of a coral color. One is a uh, gold 
type color. This is not an ASTM test, but it's a test I've developed and found it to be pretty reliable to show me how strong the pigments are. What I'm using is pool bleach or sodium hypochlorite. The concentration is 10.5%. I'm gonna dip a cotton ball into the sodium hypochlorite, place it on the surface of the sample. I'll do the same thing with the other sample. And then I'm simply gonna allow that to sit there for oh, 20 or 30 minutes and we'll see what kind of results we get. So now 30 minutes later, okay, I've had the, uh, the cotton balls with the sodium hypochlorite on them for uh, 20 minutes on the two samples. So I'm gonna take off the one on the gold paint sample. You can see that the color hasn't changed indicating that the pigments used uh, are very stable in this particular paint. Let's see how the other one did. I'm gonna take the cotton ball off. You can see that there's been a drastic change in color, indicating that we had a very weak pigment that was uh, into making this coral colored paint. Now this is an indication that this particular paint's gonna be uh, prone to premature fading and also it's going to be uh, prone to alkali burn. So if you're using some bright colors, that's a very simple test to see if that paint pigment is stable. Now in this case, what was the color that was unstable? It's red. It was a red pigment because the red and the gold made that coral color. So you subtract the red out and that's what you're left with. Um, sometimes you're surprised it doesn't even have to be bright colors. I've seen it with, uh, there was a gray uh, on a government building and they thought they were starting to get mildew all over. Instead, what it was, was that gray color was made of purple pigment and green pigment and the purple was unstable. And when you subtracted the purple, you were left with the green, and they thought that was mildew. It was high up areas, and instead it was simply uh, the paint fading. So you can test the stability of the paint very easily that way. Every painting contractor should be able to measure coating thickness. Um, when you're applying the coat, if, if you have an issue on a job, one of the first things the manufacturer is gonna say, did you put it on at the right thickness? They're gonna come and measure the thickness, and they may say, well, that's your problem, and that may or may not be the cause of the failure. Uh, there are several devices to do that in the field. Hopefully, you use uh, wet film gauges. Look, kind of looks like a comb. You press it. it, it's got different teeth with different numbers of mills on it. And so you got one, two, three, four, five, and here you might have six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so forth. So you press that into the coating, you apply the paint. It only works on smooth surfaces, though. You press it onto the coating and you see what teeth are covered. Now, if you see that one is, has paint on it, two has paint on it, three has paint on it, and four has paint on it, but five doesn't, 
that means you have four wet mills on the wall. Now, if your paint is 50% solids by volume, that means half of that paint's going to evaporate, it's solvent, and half is going to stay on the wall. So you know it'll dry to two mils dry. You compare that to your spec. If you're supposed to be getting four mils dry, you ain't getting it. So you've got to apply it heavier than that. Um, once paint is applied, there are different devices to measure the thickness. There is a ultrasonic meter that you actually put a soap solution onto it. That works on wood, on drywall, uh, on concrete. And you can measure the thickness ultrasonically using that meter. And then if you're measuring the thickness on metals, there's, this is called a Positech uh, meter that measures both on ferrous metals, ferrous is iron and steel, or non-ferrous metals being anything other than iron and steel, like copper, aluminum, and so forth, and is effective uh, under those conditions. Recently had a job uh, at a Korig facilities where there were all these uh, coffee bean silos that came from overseas, came from Germany, and they were, uh, they were pre-painted. Pre but when they got here, it was determined uh, that the paint on the interior of the hoppers had to be removed because it wasn't compatible with the, with the coffee beans. So they had the contractor remove the paint, and then they had them apply a hot wax. And afterwards, there was some, some large peeling areas on uh, many of the hoppers. And what they, what they had to do, what they wanted the contractor to do, was uh, heat it with a torch. They had already sandblasted the inside. And then they had them heat it with a torch and then they like poured this hot wax and moved it around uh, to coat the inside. And then afterwards, then uh, they got some of, the, some of the adhesion tests. We had some areas with good adhesion, some areas with poor adhesion. Uh, the manufacturer was saying to the, uh, to the American general contractor, it's your fault because you heated it. And the general contractor is saying, well, you told us to remove the coating and put this wax on, and that's the only way you could put it on. But in going there and doing the testing, I found that there was another factor. And, and I know that, that heating did have something to do with the loss of adhesion. But the other factor was that this, both of these coats were supposed to be equal in thickness. The proper thickness is this primer, the beige coat. The white coat was much thicker than it should have been. It was like three times to four times as thick as it should have been. That coating was very hard and brittle. It cracked very easily. So that improper paint thickness was a factor in the delamination. I can't say it caused it. I do think that thermal stresses by heating it with a torch was probably the major reason, but the fact that it was applied too thickly 
was a factor. There wouldn't have been as much had that not been done. I see a lot of cases of aluminum railings on uh, coastlines that are failing. This happened to be a, a condominium in uh, uh, Cocoa, Florida, and you can see the ocean in the background. It was, uh, in this case, they contractors sandblasted the railings, so all the previous coating was removed. They uh, wiped them down with water, supposedly, and then they applied a, an epoxy primer and a urethane finish. Within a short period of time, the coating is starting to flake off. You can see here large areas where it's flaking off. The metal underneath was badly corroded. The cause of this was that the surface preparation wasn't good enough to remove all the salt. There's a product called Chlorid. If you are in coastal areas, like that job uh, was like right on the ocean. It's important that chlorides, the salt, gets embedded into the metal. And just wiping it down with water once doesn't do it because between all the coats, it gets recontaminated. And so what you do is you apply this liquid called chlorid and it, it removes and encapsulates the salt. Then you can prime it. And you only do like a few feet. You do it and paint a few feet. Before you put the next coat, you use chlorid again. Before you put the final coat, you use chlorid again because it will get recontaminated so quickly. And that's what caused the corrosion there. There's something called osmotic blistering where nature tries to, to uh, dilute the salt once it's under the paint. So moisture will actually go through an epoxy paint to try to dilute that salt when it's been painted over. And so it's very important cleanliness is next to godliness in cases like this. Now, uh, a lot of times, too, part of the issue is open joints. Here you can see there's a bit of a seam, and corrosion starts at those joints, and then it progresses under the paint film. It keeps going under the paint. So it's important after you paint to caulk with a silicone sealant all of the open joints and that will help protect uh, you from having the corrosion. That corrosion occurred six months after that was painted, after it was sandblasted and painted. So the failure was really quickly. And here's another condominium where the same sort of thing happened. I had them go, uh, and in this case, we had them power tool clean. They, were, they had, again, open seams, peeling coating, we had them go and uh, here you can see again a large, a wide open seam and the corrosion starting under to undercut it. And again, same thing at an edge. Edges are particularly vulnerable 
because the coating, uh, the surface tension causes the coating to be thinner at those locations. A lot of times you should pre-stripe with the primer any sharp edges. And they had failure with the aluminum corroding underneath. So we had, uh, they had glass panels in this case that had to be covered up. You can see the heavy salt that occurs uh, on that glass. That's supposed to be clear glass, and that's actually salt, so much salt buildup there. So we had them power tool clean all this. They didn't have to remove all the factory implied uh, coating, but we had them apply, uh, use that chloride before, uh, before even the power tool cleaning, because the, if you grind, you can grind the salt into the metal, and you don't want to do that. So you clean it first, then you grind, then you clean it again, then you prime, then you clean it again, and you put the top coat. And by the time, here you can see the guy using an electrostatic gun, repainting, applying the finish coat. And then at the end, we have them fill all the seams with a uh, silicone sealant, and that'll take care of it. Then, if the owner wants to make sure that everything is, that there is no holidays, this is, an is a, a thing called a holiday detector, and you attach the clamp to the metal, and you wet this sponge, and you put that across the metal, and if there are any bare or thin spots, you'll hear it like a Geiger counter that you don't have enough paint on it. So that's the final test uh, for the owner to know that you've done it properly. Um, had a case with uh, somebody that painted shutters and they were starting to corrode. And this was a holiday test on that. I sharpened the uh, sponge kind of to a point. Whoop. What happened? I don't know what I did there. Okay. Back. I've taken the wand and sharpened a sponge so that the test area is very small and confined. Now the way this test works is that the coating applied to the slat is an insulator. So if I touch it against an area that's been insulated, you won't hear a sound. However, if I touch it to an area where there's a discontinuity in the coating film, then you will hear a Geiger counter sound. And so, uh, that will I've tell taken you the wand and sharpened a sponge so oh. that the test area is very um, so that concludes the failures I wanted to show you. Um, if you have any particular failures you want to ask me about, I'll be glad to answer. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, just a quick question. That uh, test you give the bleach? Yes. Yes. Uh, either. Oh, it on, 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 on. Yeah, in fact, 
in fact, it was the, the way I decided to use that, that test was there was a school um, that was painted and they hired a, there was some mildew and they hired a company to come in and put, uh, put chlorine to kill the bleach and the paint, and, it, and the paint was four years old. So, uh, so it was effective even on older paint. And had a big, uh, and, and actually one of the major paint companies that you would all know had a problem with red pigments for a while. And I had several buildings around that were prematurely fading and, and, and it was mostly the red pigment that was a problem. Although I've seen it with blue pigments, with purple pigments, with different colors. So it can be anything. Anybody else? Yes, sir. You, you certainly can. Some of the hand sanitizers will actually dissolve some of the acrylic paints. You can kind of use it as a paint remover in some cases. So yes, I have seen that. Yes, sir. You, you were you. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear it that well. You use bleach uh, to clean uh, to clean because of mildew. Okay. You have to make sure you wash it off well because the bleach uh, will crystallize. So you've got to make sure you really get all the you know rinse it well. Do you, do you thin the bleach like one yeah, part? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's proper. Uh, and then you're seeing like the the coating is un, uneven, flashing like. And that's on metal siding. Oh, hardy. Okay. Well, I wonder if the bleach is is just not getting washed off well enough, because that will burn out the paint. The bleach is, high, is highly, uh, uh, it's highly alkaline. So, and, and in fact, on that piece of hardy board that I was showing you, the pH test in part was seven and part was 12. The way I got that to be 12 was to put some bleach on it. So that could well be the problem that it didn't get cleaned well enough. Somebody else had a question, I think? Yes. Yeah. Road salt. Yeah. Uh, you're in a part of the country with snow, obviously. And yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that, that product I've found to be uh, uh, very effective in, in uh, removing salt. Yes. So am I. I bet you do. And it avoids a lot of failures. These failures could have been avoided and, and uh, just weren't cleaned well enough. Yes, sir? We run into a lot of um, after we've coated doors, rails, metal rails, cleaning crews can be behind constantly scrubbing and dissolving our paints down to the metal. 
uh, <laughs> that, that's a concern. No, I haven't seen much to where they're, uh, they're, they're really trying to do a good cleaning job, aren't they? Um, obviously, that's not your fault. I mean, that's, they're, they're exceeding the performance capabilities of the paint that's been applied. Yeah. Uh, the other thing with these railings, too, and uh, I get a lot of these cases with aluminum, uh, you know, windows and things on the coast, is that the owners of these facilities need to be made aware that they've got to wash things down at least quarterly and hopefully monthly because you see tremendous salt buildup on some of these and so it's not going to perform as well. Uh, but there I would, I mean that's obviously not your fault if they're using harsh chemicals and, and removing the paint. They think it is at first. They think it is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. And was this a repaint or new? This is a repaint. Okay, and one, one thing, you always, when you do the adhesion tests or if you get blisters, the first thing you always look for is what layers are coming off, you know? And so before you bid a job, let's, you know, do some adhesion tests to see. A lot of times, you know, you'll find that there's been latex paint over oil and it's not, and it may be the third time that somebody put latex that all of a sudden now the adhesion is bad. So always do the adhesion test before you do a bid on everything. I learned the hard way. Uh, one of the first jobs I did when I went, when I got out of college and went to work for our company was, was I bid on repainting the school, high school I went to. And we painted it and we had, we put in Elastomer, it was when the Elastomeric coatings first came out and the old paint just came off with our coating attached to it. And I learned a hard lesson. I should have done adhesion tests, should have done a sample with the elastomeric, done adhesion tests. Um, you're right, with every coat you put on, you're putting more weight and stress. And yes, thermal changes and moisture movement, you could have good adhesion at one point and lesser adhesion later. If you're getting blistering, so often it's moisture. I don't know if that was, what kind of substrate was this? It was a concrete substrate, and so there's a couple of unique things. We did moisture readings, and it was very low, like 3%, and so forth. Now, wow. Now, the coworker of mine was talking about that, and, so, and it's, it's blistering down to the substrate. Okay.
you're always going to have an outer mill of concrete sloughing off because of the fact that we're looking for different well, reasons. Well, and that's the thing is, is if you would look at the back of the blisters, is there any concrete latent? Because there's some concrete attached. Well, that, that's called latents. And what happens when concrete, uh, you get, you know, you've got aggregate in the concrete that gives strength, but the top surface often is much lower strength concrete. And that's why, like floors, you always, uh, the most effective thing is to uh, grit blast a floor, a blast track or something, rather than acid etch because you remove that layer of concrete. Also, as paint ages, you said it was like 1970, the, paint, the old paint gets more brittle and brittle over time, and then any kind of thermal stress or anything can make it break loose. So it's probably a combination of factors, frankly. Yes, sir? Uh-huh. It will, it will. And the higher quality of the paint, the more that's likely to happen. If you use the cheap PVA, if you use the cheap PVA, that wouldn't happen because it's not as much, much stress. No, they wouldn't. But I always tell people, if, if you've got like a property wall that's backfilled and you've got dirt, don't put a, an expensive paint on the front of it because you can't stop that moisture from coming out. You put a good paint, you're gonna have blisters. You put a cheap paint, it's going to stay on. It may discolor, but at least it'll stay on. Yeah. Yeah. The first. Well, first of all, I wouldn't have made that problem my problem. Yeah. Well, I would have said something's got to be right. Yeah. Well, the way to fix that was to, you probably could take an acrylic resin, like um, Thorough used to make one, Acra, I forget what it was called, uh, but it was a clear acrylic resin, and it would, it would penetrate. You could probably put a masonry conditioner on it and harden it. I still wouldn't tell them I'm guaranteeing it, because I don't want to make the, I don't want to make the patching guy's problem my problem, you know? Uh, but there, but I would try, I tell them, okay, we got a new contract now. I was supposed to put on this prime, a Loxon primer and a Loxon finish. We're going different now and we can try this or you can, you can sandblast it now and remove the patch and put on a, yeah, but, but the first thing you should have seen this if you just took your nail and scratch this. It was extremely soft, and that should have been recognized. You could just take your finger and scratch it right off, and, and you should know at that point it's not going to hold paint. It's kind of like trying to paint the beach. You can't do it. You know, there's no, nothing holding it together. <laughs> Anybody? Anything? Yes, sir. Haven't had any talks about what? Brick. About brick? Uh, 
Yeah, there are, uh, there are certain issues with brick. Uh, sometimes you're, you're, uh, you've got sealers that are going to interfere. You've got, you've got two surfaces, don't forget. You've got mortar and then you've got brick. So a lot of times you'll have very alkaline mortar that I've seen uh, cause issues. Again, the alkali burn and sometimes even the delamination due to that. And with some bricks, there's, a, there's, there's glazed brick that, again, it's very hard to get any kind of mechanical adhesion because the surface is very hard and smooth. And so a lot of times you got poor adhesion due to that. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, well, I hope, you, uh, I hope you learned something this morning. I implore you, if you get nothing else, do adhesion tests, please. <laughs> I'd like to retire someday, and right now there's too many failures. Thanks. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.